So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. And we're back for another virtual recording of the podcast. What are you drinking over there today? Oh, I got some some real heavy uh, coffee, you know? Got that creamer mixed in. It's uh, It's got some lion's mane mushroom in it from Four Sigmatic. I'm, I'm really going there, getting getting my mushroom brain on with uh, all my, my water. How about you? I got a LaCroix in one hand, passion fruit flavored, as well as some black coffee as well. Ooh, we're going hard. We, we really are. It, the drinking is less fun, not in person. It, it is. I am sitting on my bed, so maybe it's just the drinking in bed midday, <laughs> Saturday. Can't, can't do it. <laughs> it. It's easier when you're leaving your house exactly. at, at some level. Um, but we're, we're kicking off VIF coverage today. We're uh, revisiting a con film from 2019 that, um, that is overlooked, you know, by all um, accounts. Then we got a Netflix title that uh, for, is from Antonio Campos called The Devil All the Time. And we're previewing some exciting movies. It's a, it's a pretty stacked, good little episode, even though we're, uh, we're virtual here. That's right. We're doing first impressions of a Sundance title called Shithouse, as well as The Trial of the Chicago 7 from Aaron Sorkin. It's Uh, a Netflix prestige film with a a giant ensemble cast as Sorkin is expert at writing. Which one do you want to do first? Uh, Let's start with Sorkin. All right, let's do it. Do you know why you're on trial here? The whole world's watching! The whole world's watching! You all right? The worst until I saw that. Martin's dead. Bob is dead. Jesus is dead. They tried it peacefully. We gonna try something else. These rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security. This revolution, we may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Get out of the street! Get out of the street! When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? concerned you have to think about it give me a moment would you friend i've never been on trial for my thoughts before all right michael that was the trailer for the chicago seven what do you think um i'm kind of on the fence about it i'm not a huge aaron sorkin fan in general um i'm not super familiar with the specifics of this uh historical moment that it's um capturing um from the looks of the trailer there's maybe just kind of a 
personal dimension that's missing from it for me. Um, I mean, yeah, like you said, it looks like kind of prestige Oscar bait, um, which usually kind of tend to go in one ear and out the other for me, um, even though they can be, you know, uh, sturdily crafted. I don't know that this is going to leave a huge impression on me. What about you? (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm a lot more... um or I'm a lot less pessimistic than you about what I saw because I feel like that teaser trailer didn't show the, the breadth of the film. But what I, I do sense is that it might be, um, you know, kind of disappointing in the way that Catherine Bigelow's Detroit was it, it, it it Mm. attempts to be about this um, social issue that I'm also unfamiliar with. And it has these, really good actors in Sasha Baron Cohen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think I saw Eddie Redmayne in there. Um, I'm not too sure who else was in there because the the cast list just kind of flickered for literally a second with like five different names. I think I saw Yayu Abdul-Mateen who rose to notoriety through, I believe, Aquaman as the villain. Um, And he's always been someone that I've I've really enjoyed watching. But... um, yeah, there wasn't enough. Sorkin's films, the thing about them is they're they're wholly fake, but within their fakeness, the writing is so expertly crafted that the the interactions between the characters is so delicious that you just don't want to stop watching. That's why Molly's Game was successful with Idris Elba and Jessica Chastain. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm not on the fence but i'm a little bit worried and i really really like sasha baron cohen when he turns in dramatic performances yeah i think for me i tend to think of his movies as overwritten like i prefer a film that gives characters and their dialogue a little more room for a little more room to breathe than he likes um but that's a uh, personal preference. You know, I know he likes his tight wordy scripts. I think I prefer something with a little bit more air in them. Yeah. I, I am, you know, heavily in the middle there. I, I like both the clouds of Sils Maria and I like um, watching just the pitter patter of dialogue, whether it's Steve jobs, you know, with um, God, what was it? Michael Fassbender, Seth Rogen, Kate Winslet, or, you know, Sorkin with his Molly's Game cast. I I do think that as a director, he's not very good. He's fine, but I I just don't see anything special about him. It's almost like someone's trying to impersonate um, Spielberg at some level, like trying to make it look prestige instead of it actually being an an original way to shoot it. Yeah, I mean, and I guess I kind of have it a sense of a much clearer sense of what the Spielberg project is, whereas I'm still not sure I could um, define for you very well what the Sorkin project is as a, as in terms of him as a director. Like, I just don't know that I sense much of a signature there. Argumentative um, like characters say, that talk a lot. Right. Which to me is more of a, uh, a aspect of his scripting than his direction. Like, I, I don't know that I can, uh, you know, necessarily identify what he does with the image that is new or interesting to me. Um, yeah, I would say he impersonates that, you know, which is okay. Like, it, it looks okay. Molly's game was fun, but it's never going to win my my eyes over. It's just going to win my ears over. Yeah. 
Well, this one is right around the corner. It looks like it comes out in October. Yeah, on to Shithouse. Y'all uh, getting ready for the party here? What did you say? I just asked if y'all are getting ready. Yeah, you just called an Uber. You coming? Um, I'm not sure yet. No, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Why is calling so hard? Oh, I love calling so much! I feel like I'm just, like, floating. Ouch. You're trouble, aren't you? I'm trouble? You okay? Yeah, I'm just not feeling well, and it's super frustrating. Am I not allowed to sleep here? No, you can. Am I, like, keeping you up? Oh, no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't sleeping. Do you want to, like, go hang out? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. So you're a sophomore, right? Yeah. Did you have a tough first year? What do you mean, like, adjusting? Can I tell you a secret? I have zero friends. <laughs> Like you could say, my roommate is a friend. Sam, we need to get up. I didn't do nothing. Dropped a deuce in our room. But we hate each other and aren't friends. I have a final tomorrow. Do you want to work together? Oh. Which final? History. Um, the 18th century. Uh, paint. Paint? Where? <laughs> hey. Hey. Sorry. Do you mind if I just get past you? Oh my god. You sent her so many messages. Hey, what's going on? Hey. See you. Are you sure that that was um the girl? Yeah. It just seems like she didn't know that you existed. Alright, Michael, that was the trailer for Shit House, starring Cooper Rafe and Dylan Galula from director Cooper Rafe, also written by him. What do you think? I'm intrigued by this title. I don't think I recognize any of the cast members here. I don't know if they are um, new stars or what their experience is or what, but I'm sort of intrigued by the look of what they're doing. Um, I don't know how formally bold or new it looks. I think it looks kind of familiar in its craft, but, you know, a college set romance. Um, I don't know. The, something about the, the feeling I get from it seems pretty sincere. Um, I'm kind of intrigued. What about you? Yeah, it looks intimate and personal, which is what I'm always looking for out of new writer-directors. I don't know if this is his debut, but if it is, I think it's a pretty sharp way to start. Um, I will say that we are familiar, although you don't remember her, with Dylan Galula, um, who is the main um, love interest here. She was known in Support the Girls for standing on top of the bar and accidentally exposing her breast. Oh, I do remember this. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, she, she was, uh, you know, definitely a supporting character in most of the work that I've seen her, and I've seen her in a few other things, but definitely an interesting, you know, love angle here where it's someone who has no friends, falling in love with someone who is not interested. Um, but, you know, as tropey as it is, I, I see a lot of sincerity here. So I, I'm absolutely willing to watch it. And what's exciting is seeing a writer-director um, that's this young. You know, he just visually looks very, very young. So if he's going to start out with something really personal, swinging, um, not formally dazzling, but formally sturdy, you know, that that could be a, a great boon for cinema in the future. Yeah, 100 um, percent. I don't know that I caught a release date for this one. Um, did you happen to spot one? 
I did not. I, I do see that they just added the official trailer here on the IFC YouTube channel um, on the second of this month. So just over two weeks ago. So it is possible that they're still uh, working out distribution, but I, I would expect it to hit October um, here since they're ramping up. Not too far away. Cool. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. All right, let's get on to Netflix's title, The Devil All the Time, from director Antonio Campos. How and why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story in Knock'em Stiff. You ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. Some people would say it's just dumb luck. You take pictures? I do. I see a smile pretty enough to photograph, that is. Others would tell you it was God's plan. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That ain't no preacher. He's as bad as they got on the damn radio. When people look back on it, they had no other choice. There's a lot of no good sons of bitches out there. Excuse me, preacher. You got time for a sinner? You know, I studied something. It's called the delusion. A belief that is untrue. It is our delusion that lead us to sin. All right, Michael, this film is a little bit like a film that we reviewed last year that we were in lockstep on. I think we're going to be a little bit out of sync here. The film that I'm referencing is a title that we never quite remembered, but it ends in El Royale. It could be the bad times at the El Royale, or it could be the, the, the battle at the bad times at the El Royale. I forget, but it's, it's equally got a, a huge cast a screenplay that's trying to bring all these characters together, pulp, and a lot of death. That's right. I have said the name of that movie wrong way more times than I've said it right. Bad Times at the El Royale, I think. Uh, but yeah, I believe that's, a fair that's comparison. right. Who knows? Uh, the Devil All the Time, a lot easier to remember. The only thing you're going to confuse that with is Before the Devil Knows Your Dead. That's right. Uh, I think it's the first Antonio Campos title that we have talked about on the show, but I believe you're a fan of Christine with uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Hall. Is that correct? I, I am an enormous fan of that film. Yep. That's one of my few perfect fives from that year. Yeah. Very cool. Um, cool. Um, maybe I'll read just a basic plot description just to kick us off. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll go with the one that's on letterbox. There are a few different ones drip, uh, drifting around out there. This one reads, in Knock'em Stiff, Ohio, and its neighboring backwoods, sinister characters converge around young Arvin Russell as he fights the evil forces that threaten him and his family. And Arvin Russell is played by Tom 
Holland, but as you mentioned, uh, this is a pretty stacked cast that it has. Um, who else we got here? We have Robert Pattinson, Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, Haley Bennett from Swallow, Riley Cow, Harry Mellon, who you might know as Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter films, or the fellow with no arms or legs from last year's Coen Brothers film that I'm now forgetting that was a vignette piece. Or do you remember the title of that film? Oh, um, it's escaping me. I know what you're talking about. They'll have to look it up. Sebastian Stan, also known as the Winter Soldier, Mia Wazakowska, who we've covered many of her films, Eliza Scanlon from this year's Baby Teeth, Jason Clark. And then it gets a little bit more dicey. And I will say that our narrator is Donald Ray Pollock, who wrote the book that the film is based on. Right. Uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That's what you were looking for, right? That is it. Thank you. That's the one. Um, yeah, I was not too high on this title. I get the sense that you're a little more favorable on it. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. I am still mixed on it, but I, I think that I, I just can't imagine not having a good time watching this, regardless of any um, eccentricities or absurdities that it has. I gather you really disliked the uh, keeping track of time that this film asked you to do. Uh, I happened to mention that in my, you know, comments about the film. I don't know that I would double down on that is the thing that is the problem with the movie is its use of time. It does jump in back just it does jump back and forth a couple times. And I don't know that it that it did much for me. I don't know that it, it, it's working with time all that well. But um that's not really the, the crux of my issue with it i think i have other problems um is it robert pattinson's perfect southern draw <laughs> no he's getting a lot of flack for that i can tell i personally like don't mind like whether it is a good accent or a bad accent it's an entertaining one i don't mind watching that performance. yeah i thought it was a fun like take on an evangelical accent from someone who's affluent yeah i i, I forget who, who it was now i who i saw on twitter say something like in response to the article headline that said he had kept the accent a secret up until he actually played the scenes, someone said, like, probably should have just kept it a secret forever. Um, <laughs> I, I disagree. I, I, think it, I think it was fun. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, what did you uh, r- respond to here or, or not respond to? I, I mean, let me just kind of define the film as I see it first. I. I see this as one of Netflix's very few couch crowd pleasers that isn't released by Adam Sandler, you know, and that's comparing it to other uh, movies that are bad largely. But I think that if you sit on the couch and you watch this with friends or family, it's fun to be like, do you think that he's also going to kill this guy and get away? And just the, the amount of, um, enjoyment you get from the pulpiness is is very high um i i really really appreciate literature and i think that the literary adaptation here with the narration from the original author of the text was a really superb way of kind of providing an oversight that makes it feel really really well worked through the eye of the needle um you never doubt that it's taking you on a ride that you can trust 
it's kind of like the feeling of not being or of being on a roller coaster that you know isn't in need of repair you just trust that the destination you're getting to is going to be fulfilling and i i found that the entire way i have um some problems with it that are are very hard to describe it's in no means a perfect film but i found it to be a very very fun one yeah i think for me it's maybe one of the more overcasted movies i've seen in a long time where i don't think this movie really understands kind of the gravitational force that stars have almost by definition and when you have you know the plot who in here is a star everyone like the entire cast you you i mean anyone who pays you know like uh even like a moderate degree of attention to cinema don't you think they are going to be pretty familiar with most of the members of this cast the the people i watched it with did not recognize anyone besides winter soldier and spider-man okay well i will i'll only speak for myself then where i would say i was i thought you know there were probably like five to ten highly recognizable cast members oh and i'm i'm with you right like eliza scanlon comes in and you're like holy shit they saved her this long and you're like Haley bennett's already dead riley cow's barely getting this much time like i i'm totally with you there bill skarsgård the guy from it's already gone but I, I think that by and large, they're not stars and the, like, they're not, there's no Scarlett Johansson here. Yeah. Well, maybe they're just too recognizable then for me. And I think to just even go back to that plot description I read where it says sinister characters converge around young Arvin Russell, which suggests he is at the center, the axis of this ensemble piece. I think it really kind of lacks a center. I think, I think so much attention is diverted away from him that it feels sort of like it just is just kind of lacking concentration. Like it needs more centrifugal force than it has. Um, and I think the detention, the attention to all these characters becomes really diffuse for me. Uh, when I see someone like Mia Vasikowska, I never say that right. I don't think I've literally ever said that right. Um, come and go so quickly. It, it's distracting. It, it only draws more attention to the fact that I felt like I have zero sense of who that woman was before she was murdered. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think that's a real uh, problem for me personally um, to have um, re- very recognizable faces um, just scattered across this, this big movie. It's a, it does feel like a very big movie to me. Yeah, I I think I understand your point. I I guess I don't mind not having the what is described as the main character as the center of the film because when you're looking at a piece of narrative like this, I I think that the the primary goal here was to make the world real and make the people that are dying, which is essentially the entire content of this piece, people dying, um, feel like individual people that could be real in the world. And when you write narrative fiction that is about a hero protagonist and the world is, is revolving around him, um, that becomes really, really unbelievable really, really quickly. We're going to talk about a film later that I, I found that to be a huge problem with called Sybil. Um, or I guess we're talking about that next. And um, that's why I don't mind it. I, I really, really actually like it in the narrative fiction that I read. And 
um, depending on how it's presented, the narrative fiction that I watch. But I, I understand the point, you know, it's not following Josh Brolin with this um, great brooding cinematography um, like we get from the Coen brothers, you know, in their adaptation of a book that that's, you know, also kind of pulpy um, in its own way and in, in about America in the past. So, yeah, I, I see your point. I just disagree. Fair enough. Um, and I, I think I understand your point about it just being a genuine, a, a generally entertaining enough movie to watch um, because of the kind of network narrative shape of it. Um, and the question of who's going to get it next, that is kind of the uh, experience. Um, but I guess I just didn't really feel like that was the what the movie was trying to do. I think it's trying to talk about the relationship between religion and violence in this um, setting, 50s backwoods Midwest. And it really felt to me like that was more its sort of um, ostensible reason for being, where it really is just kind of trying to get to the violence. I think it's much more interested in depicting the violence itself than it is in exploring some of the, the, the nuances of all these different, all these many different dynamics. Um, I, I just, not, I'm just not sure how much insight I got from this movie about um, religion and violence and, and how the two play out in this setting. Um, did, did you find much meaning in that aspect of the film or was it? Well, more I, I would push entertainment? back on the, in, on the reading of it's about religion and violence. It, it, I don't think it is. I think that the area that it's depicting shows a, a religious type, right? But w what's really at the center here is by the end, uh, a serial killer couple who the sister is the sister of the sheriff who saves Arvin in the beginning or doesn't save him. Sorry, that's the wrong term. Um, shows up when his father has passed. And his father had killed himself because he couldn't live without the mother who dies of cancer. Um, so th this film is about death first. I think that it's also very interested in dogmatism and power. And dogmatism can be focused to religion. And it is. You're right. You know, the, the Robert Pattinson and the, uh, the Harry Medling and, and Mia Wasikowska and Eliza Scanlon plot lines are very much about religion. Arvin's growing up um, in this religious um, hold, but the, that's all represented by dogmatism, right? And, and it's how Robert Pattinson treats his grandmother once he's the new pastor that, that kind of, um, you know, sets him away from the church and arguably leads him down that path. But I, I think that's not, I, I think that, by focusing on that over the plot line of power for the sheriff or the plot line of power um, and the absence of it that is exhibited by Riley Kiao and gosh, I'm forgetting his name, but the guy that played Kennedy in Chappaquiddick. Um, I, I think that's, you know, just as equally powerful and interesting. It's dogmatism, it's power and killing the stuff that is evil. You're right. I mean, I think you're touching on plot threads that have less to do with religion than, than some of the others. Um, I personally found the one with Sebastian Stan, who plays the sheriff, um, who's the corrupt sheriff, to be the least yes. engaging by far. Like the scene where he, I couldn't even tell you who it was that he murdered, um, where that feel, I just felt absolutely nothing watching that 
that created the movie. Found. He killed one guy in a kitchen. You're right. He, he did kill two. You're right. Uh, I mean, I just felt absolutely nothing watching that. And it, it just didn't feel like that mattered at all. Um, but I, I mean, to say that it's not about religion, like if you take religion out of this, you couldn't even have like three out of the five like plot strands that are in this movie, right? Like you have Bill Skarsgård's character turning to religion to deal with these traumas from war and and the, his wife dying. You have Eliza Scanlon's, you know, devoutness leading her vulnerability by the preacher. The preacher is using it as a tool to manipulate people. Um, like I feel like that's everywhere in the movie. Yeah, I, I, I would just push back on, on seeing it just as religion and not as power and dogmatism. Because I, I think that the, the dogmatic nature of these characters is throughout the entire film. Um, whether it's how Robert Pattinson is um, behaving as the preacher, or if it's how Bill Skarsgård is um, telling his son to pray because he is having uh, extreme post-traumatic stress from um, what has occurred in the war and is, is being challenged by his wife having cancer. Um, I think there's just different ways to read narrative fiction, which is the beauty of it. And I think we just don't see the story here in the same way. And that's why I like it because it is divisive enough and, and open enough to interpretation um, that you you can have a different experience with it even if it's a bad experience it's a different experience than i had and not every movie offers that yeah um yeah fair enough um what else any anybody you particularly cared for cast wise since it is such a an ensemble piece i thought Haley bennett was great i i yep. really did she she just um, in her very brief time, provided a very uh, feminine, uh, emotional core um, for Arvin as, as a young boy. That Without that, I really think that the film would fall apart um, because that's what Bill Skarsgård is building off of, is her, her, the strength that Haley Bennett offers. And it's so brief, but it's, you know, she does as much as she can with what's written there. Um, and then I, I really, really love Eliza Scanlon and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I liked Eliza Scanlon. I think it's her, what happens to her. Um, are we doing spoilers here? Have we given away yeah. any spoilers? Yeah, yeah we spoilers. talked about all these dead. Everyone <laughs> dies besides our. <laughs> Fair enough. Sometimes with brand new movies, you know, we, we sometimes hold off. But yeah, there's something about uh, how that story plays out with her intending to kill herself and then deciding against it at the last minute only to accidentally kill herself. I don't know. There's just a, fl a flippancy towards violence in the, that this movie has, I think, um, that, that rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I don't know how... Well, I would say that's much. death, not violence. So that's a difference sure. in reading already, right? Sure. I, I, don't, I would not consider it a great way to go. So, you know, there is well, something yeah, that's, still that's violent about it's, death itself. Um, it's, um unfair right that's the thing about Haley bennett that's the thing about bill skarsgård that's the thing about her it, it's the unfair deaths that surround him yeah i i said so, uh, maybe it's troubling for me that the movie was unsuccessful in, in, in eliciting much empathy in me for her when that happens when it's a pure accident and it feels like it's just um uh just a, a tossed off finish to that character's story um I don't know. There's just a flippancy there to me that, that, that rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Um, 
uh, yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, I just, I had a, a different interaction with this and I'm, I'm so interested that, that yours is so different. Um, I, I think that you're, you know, you're speaking of it fairly negatively, but you came out mixed. How, how far down on mixed did you come? I wouldn't say mixed. I would say fairly negative. Um, well, two and a half is, sound- is 50. That's an F in my book. Like okay. if I'm giving something <laughs> a two and a half or below, like at the end of the day, like I, I just didn't like it very much. Um, gotcha. You know, it, it's, it's a, it's a well-crafted movie. Like it's got a big budget that just comes with a certain amount of entertainment value. Do I think this is like a, a really great work though? Not really. Oh, I think, I, I think it's a pretty good narrative adaptation and I really, really like the narration um, here that I think without it, it would, just be not nearly as committed uh, a storytelling um, film. Um, but did you have a favorite scene? Wait, I mean, there are individual scenes that I found uh, enjoyable on their own because I, I kind of like a lot of these people and the work that they're doing. I kind of liked Henry Melling, right? Who was in uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I liked most of his scenes, even kind of the absurdity of this of the spider thing. I thought was kind of fun. I kind of liked his, you know, delusional uh, religious fanatic character. Um, like after he takes out Mia Vasikowska, the 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 very real look of hope in his face that he's going to bring her back to life. He's a good actor. I I I'd like he to really see him is. more. Yeah. I, what about I'm you? Greatly surprised. Um, that is a wonderful question. I think that the scenes that were most entertaining are the violent scenes. And the, the only scene that I can think of that I found to be kind of beautiful, um, that was a premonition to the violence is uh, a hairy meddling scene or melling scene in which he's about to die. And, uh, that fellow that I'm forgetting the name of again, Ted Kennedy from Chappaquiddick, and um, Riley Kiao are are at the uh, the dam there at the, at the top along the water, and it's just a good looking scene. There's a lot of you know trepidation and uncertainty because this is going to be the first kill, and we don't know if they're going to go through with it or not yet. Um, and so, just everything that makes that scene occur um, that that was definitely the most powerful one that I can recall. Cool, I like it. On to Sybil. Faut que vous le voyez. Que vous veniez sur le tournage. Moi, j'arrive plus à réfléchir. J'arrive plus à me projeter. Non, c'est impossible, ça. Sometimes I feel. Why did you cast her if you knew that she was Lucy Gore? I figured it was just a, a petite histoire. Action! I would just have to sit back and watch reality destroy things. Contrôle-toi, s'il te plaît. Ne me parle pas. Parle à Sybil. Sybil, dites-lui qu'elle arrête de me faire mal volontairement. C'est pas possible. Ne soyez pas contre moi par principe. Is that a joke? I'm done. I'm done. No. Mika! <gasps> Mika! All right, Michael, we're talking about Sybil, a entry into Khan back in 2019 that um, has kind of the definition of mixed reviews. I think it's got about a 59 on Metacritic and uh, just a little bit below that on Rotten Tomatoes. What did you end up thinking about this one? Uh, I like this movie. Uh, I was genuinely a little confused for some of this movie, to be honest. Uh, I think I would like it even better on a second go round, but I am 
positive on this movie. I'll start there. What about you? I take it you are not. I am negative. I am extremely negative on this movie. I found it very disconnected, very um, just unaffecting and unsure of itself. And then it tries to make up for a lot of that with uh, Mika or Sandra Huller, who plays the female director there towards the end and tries to go a little bit fourth wall to, to make up for a lot of misses. I, I really did not care for this film, both just taste-wise and um, presentation. Do you want to read a quick plot synopsis? Yeah, let me find one on IMDb here. Um, well, this is a sentence, so if you feel like we oh. need a little bit more, let me know. <laughs> A jaded psychotherapist returns to her first passion of becoming a writer. Yeah, you're no kidding. That is brief, but yeah, okay. <laughs> we, can, we, we can work with that, I suppose. Um, that psychotherapist is played by Virginia Efira. Uh, I'm definitely mm-hmm. watching that. Um, we also have Adele Exarchopoulos from Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, most famously, it's directed by Justine Triette. Um, yeah, I guess I responded to the structure of the movie. I mean, I think there's something kind of bold about the the flashbacks that are integrated into the the kind of main through line. Um, so this this psychotherapist, you know, has this. She's she's married, I gather, with two kids, but she's sort of. Uh, remembering a, a past relationship as she gets involved with Adele Exarchopoulos' character, this client of hers who inspires her writing. So I'd, I'd already pushed back on you there. I think she starts doing that when she begins writing, pre-Adele Exarchopoulos uh, calling her. Um, so I, I think that it was her going through her past to try to come up with things to write about, I believe. I might be wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's totally fair. The first flashback might come before she actually meets Adele. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the writing process is then informed by her interaction with Exarchopolis's character. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's just kind of a, an interesting use of tone here because there are, you know, a handful of different tones that I think were pretty, pretty fun. There's kind of this kind of ironic suspense to it, even though this is not really a suspense movie. Um, it's a very sexy movie in a way that like, I think is kind of like one of the best things about French cinema that we just don't get in American cinema in, in quite the same way. Um, I think it's often quite funny, um, but sad too. I mean, this is ultimately, ultimately about just a woman's breakdown as she um, tries to re-engage with the writing and gets, um, gets in over her head as she tries to find inspiration in this. Um, uh, yeah, the, 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 the structure was just not as effective for you. Oh boy. None of it was as effective for me. I did not find it comedic. I did not find the drama to be sincere. Um, I didn't believe the writing process. I didn't believe the psychotherapy. Like I just, I couldn't believe what I was looking at to begin with. I think that Adele is actually very, very good here. And I would even push back on it being sexy. Um, 
like a, a lot of the the flashback specifically for Virginia is I just found it not um, <laughs> to to be sexually um, precocious or it, it was more like mournful remembrance of her past and and the lust that she used to have and I think that that ending narration where she talks about how she's removed herself from everyone and everything around her I, I think that I, I I don't know if that was purposely like trying to be informed in those flashbacks but I felt it before that narration occurred in the flashbacks it just did not seem like the character there was actually present I, I didn't find the substance of the film to be real. It was, it was just, I was completely disconnected from anything that would resemble emotional resonance. Like the, the things that I felt towards Adele were never felt towards our main character. Mm, interesting. Um, what about the scene in front of the fireplace, that one particular flashback? I mean, I, you're right. I, I think sexiness can be, laced with with regret and nostalgia it's not it's not a particularly ecstatic kind of sexiness it is there is some regret in it um i thought those were like like incredibly intimate and kind of like feral i thought those were like awesome scenes didn't you didn't buy those i i did not i i think that i might just not buy afira as an actress um i think that that is possible i i just Mm did not believe her. And when you introduce Fred Durst, no matter how passively you do it, you automatically, to me as the viewer that Taylor is, I'm going to go, okay. Or sorry, Robert Durst, not Fred Durst. This isn't Limp Biscuit. I was uh, confused. <laughs> I was like, is this an analogy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a Limp Biscuit analogy about a French film that can't... <laughs> Uh, but but when you introduce Robert Durst and um, if you're familiar with his story at all and how he admitted to the crimes that he committed over a hot mic in a bathroom while recording a documentary during the last day of shooting, then you know what you're going to be finding in this film, even before the film is introduced, right? Because when she's writing she pulls up that robert durst article and the film has not yet been introduced that adele is shooting but right then you know basic foreshadowing she's going to admit whatever it is that she's been holding back from the viewer at that point in time and that is exactly what occurred um so at at some level i just never found a way to um, grapple onto this and I, I was trying to keep Adele away because I didn't know if I could trust her either because she's calling this psychotherapist every other day saying that she's going to do something or that she needs help and it's just like well I don't know how reliable a character this is either uh, with, your, with your point that it was predictable about the yes the article got yeah yeah fair um yeah, I don't know. Um, I, yeah, I, I was. I, I really did gravitate towards um, Exarchopoulos' performance. I mean, I think. I don't know. It's just. It's just a really intensely kind of emotional performance. I think. I don't know. She's just one of those actresses I can't really take my eyes off of, especially when she's. I, I agree about her, not about Afira. Yeah. I, I, 
who I who I who I really did enjoy, um, especially towards the end where this breakdown really is um, kind of uh, in full force, and she's um, you know she's she's drunk at the end. She's finally fallen off the wagon. We know that she uh, has been in, in AA throughout the story. I mean, I think um, I like a movie that's that's willing to let a, a female protagonist and heroine have this kind of messy downward trajectory. Um, I, I don't know. I, I find that, I find that very real and kind of uncommon. Um, and that they're just, it's just kind of dealing with, with very human things. The, um, you know, whether it's her sex life, her, 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 her work, um, her, interest in this story i don't know these are these are just kind of uh areas that i that i respond to i guess um right so I, let me you remember gloria bell julianne Moore last year i did not see that gloria? film okay but i remember it yeah it, it does a lot of the things you're talking about what it doesn't do is have a psychotherapist turned writer become a therapist after she quits being a therapist for a actress who's highly volatile and then put her on a movie set right because Mm -hmm. at some level that is just so unrealistic like i just found this Mm -hmm. to be so deeply unrealistic and uninteresting because of that reason so like all all the stuff you're saying about you know the the things you like that that are exciting and in real i i think i can agree with those point by point until I make the qualifier that in that film where all that happens, she goes to a film set on a volcano mm-hmm. and sleeps with her, um, her patients, uh, whatever he is, boyfriend, love interest. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. it's too tropey. It's too melodramatic and it's not earnestly dramatic. It's just that, that uninteresting tropish melodrama unfortunately for me that's that's how i feel about it yeah i can completely understand the just the, the difficulty with the suspension of disbelief you just don't buy the the, the setup that the therapist would 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 go as far as she does that that she would even be roped into this by her client totally fair um definitely felt to me like the director was genuinely interested in this character i definitely sense more more earnestness than 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 that i think um i think those seeds are so fun once they're on the volcano i think sandra huller is is incredible i think that's it's i just got a kick out of watching her as this exasperated director and again i think there's just something about kind of like the silliness of some of the erotic scenes that they're shooting that is really um kind of distinctly french to me um that I, I just I just find enjoyable um, while there's this obvious tension on the set as well. Um, but uh, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Do you find this to be a comedy slash drama? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. I would, yeah, that, that feels like a fine definition to me. I would maybe say psychodrama. You could even say kind of, psychosexual comedy drama maybe that's the most comprehensive description of it for me psychosexual comedy drama which sounds wordy but i think that maybe captures the the tones and 
um, uh, things that are on its mind. What about you? No. <laughs> the, the reason I'm asking is because I, I, I've tried to understand my disconnect um, in, in greater detail because I, I find it really interesting when a film is this divisive. And from all the positive reviews that, that I found, whether it, it was, you know, in the New Yorker or just on Letterboxd, there were people talking about the comedy. And I think I laughed maybe three times. And I, I did not, I, I just didn't find a lot of stuff funny. The funniest thing was when Adele was destroying um, Afira's apartment room or hotel room at, at the end for me. Um, and I also laughed mm. when um, they were having their intimate scene while Afira was directing after um, the director had jumped off the boat. Right. And I mean, that was just so absurd and fourth wall, you know, interacting that I, I just, I couldn't take the, the substance seriously. So I think that because I didn't get on the wavelength of the comedy, the whole film ended up not coming together for me. So I, I predict that if you can find the comedy here, you end up liking the film a lot more. And I unfortunately just did not get on that level. Yeah. I don't know that I would describe it as that divisive. It doesn't seem like to me like it's, it's that necessarily polarizing. I mean, you're right. 59 is the meta meta score. Um, but like the range isn't that polarizing. Like there's, there's, there's a, there's a hundred 75, 70, 70. The lowest I see here is a 40. You know, I, yeah, I don't well, know. It's, I don't it's know not this going is like a, to one. Uh, yeah, like I don't know that I would describe this as like a love, a love hate movie. It actually just seems like most people are kind of in the middle on it. Yeah, I I guess maybe I, I worded that incorrectly. Um, I I don't know, but it it is a, a mixed film that I yeah, and I think that mixed films are a little bit more complex and. I, I I like the word divisive, but if you think that's incorrect here, then I, I don't know what the correct word would be. But I, I do think that there's, when you see this type of a film score range, there's something in the the subtext or the context that, that kind of provokes discussion in a way that films on either end of the spectrum kind of don't. These, these films tend to be a little bit more, um, you know, interesting to dig into the differences in experience. Yeah, and to me that Fair enough. the word divisive kind of fits in there, but maybe more um, more ripe for for conversation would be better. Who knows? Yeah, I'm with you. But there, Shall we move on. There oh, are ahead. beautiful scenes here. What was your favorite scene? Uh, I think I really did like some of the stuff on the set of the film within the film quite a bit. Um, I think Sandra Holler is a really strong supporting member of the cast here. Um, so maybe some of the ones on the boat I thought were pretty entertaining. Um, what about you? Yeah, I, I think that I'd have to go with Adele having um, her, her mini um, breakdown upset thing where she's, she's running up the hill and slapping uh, her love interest repeatedly and just the the layering of that with the subtext of of the the deeper story in this film and then her asking how she's doing 
Um, and then the director telling her and her not believing that and then asking Afira, I just that whole scene was um, pretty, pretty juicy if you can suspend your disbelief for it. And I was able to for that one. Word. On to Siberia. Your soul is outside of you and you must claim it. destroyed my life. Michael, this is, I believe, the first film we've covered from Abel Ferreira. Is that correct? I think that's accurate. And we do have a, a episode planned down the road for three of his films, but this is a, a nice little taster. This one's even more of a, a mixed review, according to Metacritic. We've got a, a 55, and the film stars Willem Dafoe and the... Um, synopsis are you ready for it give it to me exploration into the language of dreams that's it (laughs) and i i feel like that is almost too wordy but also describes it perfectly that on imdb as well that is yeah yeah starring willem dafoe and willem dafoe really about not many other folks in this movie um, Would you like me to read a, a brief list of the, the characters that he encounters? Oh, are, are they listed as characters on IMDb? Oh, yes. You ready for oh, this? Oh, that's interesting. What do we got? We have wife, magician, mm. Russian girl, doctor, monk, woodsman, Eskimo, lady in cellar, demon. You know what? I actually think that's useful for listeners because this is a film very much dealing with the abstract, as those would suggest. Yes, yes. It is an extremely abstract dreamscape that is as reliant on, um, you know, really volatile scenes becoming really gentle as it is with the really volatile music becoming gentle Mm -hmm. or just a fish talking that too oh yeah i forgot about that um there is something about these movies where like i i tend to forget details because like i think to myself like did i make that up somehow um that is exactly how i feel about this film i actually re-watched it at two times speed before we talked about it mm. today because i questioned whether or not i missed the lead up into every single scene 
mm. that exists in this film. I was like, well, how did he get there though? And I was right. There is no, how did he get there? There's just him arriving. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it starts out in the Siberian tundra, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but we follow Willem Dafoe from there into uh, caves to the desert to this like idyllic farmland we venture into space at one point um with with his child dreaming i think Mm. that that is one of the only points where you actually can follow the through line i will say that it actually starts out with um a a narration that Mm. kind of leads you into uh feeling who willem the character is kind of in in a poetic narrative sense. And without that background of his fears and his childhood, I think I would have had a really, really hard time having an emotional connection to this character. So I Mm -hmm. I do think that that is extremely crucial. And I, I, I will mention that I believe that the motif here is that he's always on the journey with the dogs that scared him. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's always flashing back to being in the tundra of Siberia in, in the midst of the snow and the cliffs and the trees with these dogs that he was scared of biting him that were always nipping at his heels as a child. And he's, he's riding on the back of his fears, essentially. And we're always cutting to that after he's arrived somewhere, whether he's learning from the teacher or he's having, uh, you know, a sexual experience um, with uh, one of the many different female characters. Um, you know, it gets a little bit lynchy in there for, for a brief amount of time. Uh, there was a little bit of the house that Jack built when he confronts himself. Mm. Um, at least to my eye, that was a very reminiscent of, of a scene from that film. Um, so it's, it's hard to explain, um, but it, it is an emotional, unmoored, reflective more dreamlike than any film I can think of. Yeah, something tells me Willem Dafoe's wife is, this is probably not her favorite of his movies. Probably not. He is married. I believe he's married to some girl in Italy. I think he lives in Italy now. Yeah, yeah. I think he lives like a couple doors down from Abel Ferrara, which is interesting. That would make Uh, sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, Yeah, you mentioned Lynch. Some of this feels very lynchy into me, the cave stuff in particular, where he's encountering these, uh, you know, naked uh, bodies, different people kind of marching towards him, like they just march out of a hospital or something like that. They're all kind of bloodied. That felt very, very lynchian. Um, You know, I don't know how you can't, how you you could not think of Malik when we go from a father and son to the cosmos you know in the span of a cut or something like that yeah i saw you mention that that never occurred to me until you wrote it down like i just i was so kind of trying to understand the film that i never made the comparisons until after the film was over Mm, yeah 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 i mean i i do think there is a gentleness to malik's form that is not here this feels you're saying that he doesn't have heavy metal music when his credits queue? Not so much. Not so much. <laughs> not as many uh, hostage hostage executions. Um, inexplicably. Correct. Yes. Yeah. This um, is wild. Yeah, but maybe just something about kind of the scope of it, um, or just kind of that sense of drift. You know, that we're we're just kind of on this 
this current and you just have to kind of go with it. And, and for me, that's what's so great is that I do. I just very much uh, just kind of feel like I'm in this, this stream and I very easily buy all these segues um, that are very unreal um, and, and, and just think they're incredibly captivating. Um, you mentioned the dogs. I love the dogs. Some of those cuts to the dogs are just so striking. Um, and yeah, the, the, the monologue, it says something like the dogs were sweet, but they were, you know, just wild enough to be scary or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, you just feel both when I, when I look at those dogs, I see the sweetness, but I'm also kind of afraid of what, what they might do. Um, I think I, I, I just love that touch. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much I don't know what to make of. Like, um, I don't know, especially the, the, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like he passes like a prison or like a terrorist group at one point when, he, when he's traveling on the dog sled through the mountains. And I don't know, we're watching people get executed or something like that. I don't know what fear this is representing, but I would be lying if I said I wasn't like really struck by it and kind of entranced by it yeah i i don't know that this is a film that behooves hyper specificity but i i think that there's generalities that can be made and i think Mm. that that they all lead back to that introductory narration and maybe that's just my way of coping with the fact that i can't understand this film i Mm -hmm. genuinely don't know but i i will say that when i think of the line where he he's warm but he has to go to the bathroom and he has to run outside Mm. through the cold and the snow with the dogs nipping at his heels then he closes the outhouse door and the whole time he's in there he's scared of what's going to happen when he has to leave and go back to the warmth and the comfort i think that if you if you just take that and you look at the whole entirety of the film it feels like there's those warm in the house moments. And then there's those terror. Is this going to catch up to me moments? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that maybe he's scared of terrorism. It's maybe that his subconscious mm-hmm. knows that that's a thing to be afraid of. And that's where the language of dreams comes in. Um, and, you know, w- what are these wild, not wild dogs? They're half domesticated, half wild. And that's kind of what humans are. You know, they're the, when we're awake, we're, we're very much domesticated. At least you and I here in America, we're, we're fairly domestic. We're both inside our houses here during um, COVID. And then there's that, that wildness that we can't control in our dreams. And I think that the dogs reflect the very nature of the, the human examination of Clint Willem Dafoe's character. Um, And I, I just find that so rich in, the context, the subtext of, of the film. And it is so visually dreamlike that I had to watch it again to make sure that I didn't miss the structure of a film. <laughs> yeah. Like you're like, surely I just like looked away during a uh, segue or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, like I looked away during all the points in time when he was walking in hallways into film sets. That's what I missed. You, you thought, you thought you maybe missed the flight from Siberia to the Mojave Desert. All nine of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't expect to, to talk so much about the monologue, but you're right. I, I think, I don't think I even really appreciated until you brought it up how crucial it is. And maybe it's because so much of the movie is so 
abstract, but the monologue is so like kind of hyper specific. Mm-hmm. Like I almost was tempted to to like rewind that and be like, did I did I get all that? Because he just described in detail these trips with his dad um, into Canada, um, mm-hmm. which like some of the detail. It's like, does this matter? Um, but there is something about the the detail needed to kind of to buy into this. If you were if it was so abstract from the get go, you might just not you know find your way in. Um, so great point. I, I agree. And I, I think that the other introductory scene there, which is, um, I believe it's an Eskimo. I might be wrong uh, coming into the bar and speaking with no subtitles and him just grabbing different bottles, right? Like that is the definition of get ready. Cause you're not going to have any idea what's happening. Um, and yeah. I think that was just such a, because everybody knows that he wants alcohol and that Willem Dafoe is trying to figure out which alcohol by grabbing different objects off the shelf. And, you know, that almost builds into later where it's, what does Willem Dafoe want? He's grabbing these different experiences through these dreams and what does he actually want? And I, I don't think we ever really arrive at that. I think that, um, we just find out that he's, you know, emotional and unsure. Yeah, I found myself like I was reaching for the remote thinking I needed to put on subtitles. And then I was like, I don't think they're there actually. And Oh, I, sure I checked. I, I am oust <laughs> over that uh, many, many a time checking for yeah. those subtitles. Where would they be? No, that's, that's how you watch it two times faster. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um. Yeah, I, I I loved it. Um, but you said it like you said it is divisive. It's got an interesting graph on Letterboxd where you know the the ratings are all over the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. It is uh, obscure, but um, to me it was it was pretty spellbinding. Yeah, it's it's highly emotional and very um difficult to speak about you know like i i could bring up this scene in which he goes to the teacher to learn mm-hmm. right and you'd go oh yeah i remember that scene and then we would have nothing else to talk about that scene or i could mention the fish that talks again and we would have nothing else to address because it is such a an interesting representation of the language of dreams and i i think that if that was the objective to explore the language of dreams, then he entirely succeeded. And I think that the mixed reviews is a reflection of that. I think that if it was like a perfect film and everybody liked it, then it it couldn't be that because dreams, especially of the nature that are observed here, are volatile and unfriendly and, um, you know, really personal and um, kind of anxiety ridden. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this has distribution yet or not, but you know, these are ones I think that are tough sells. If you don't just embrace the fact that they're essentially kind of avant-garde works and you try to tell the audiences that there's something else and you just are misprepareing them. Um, yeah. If you have like a tough bad time. Lieutenant, this might not be a film for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, or even just the fact that Willem Dafoe is on the cover, you know, I think will uh, invite certain viewers expecting one thing and getting another. Although Willem Dafoe has been doing weird stuff lately. So um, he's been doing not. weird stuff forever. 
around. It's true. It's true. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see it again. This is one I would love to see on the big screen. I think I would have been even higher on it. You know, it's never ideal to watch something on a screen. Oh, yeah. um, but especially in a theater, I think this would have, I would have really, really connected with it. Yeah, if, if somehow SIF puts this on as part of their retrospective of 2020 in 2021, I, I would certainly buy a ticket to go be isolated in the darkness along with this film because it, it invites um, a more personal story that I, I think you can really only get in a, in a cocoon of darkness and um, just being with it. Absolutely. So we'll keep an eye out. Um, did you have a favorite scene? Boy, I feel like I have a lot, but um, one that I really liked, and this was one that I really did not understand, but just really responded to, I think it was towards the end of this like string of sex scenes. You know, we see Defoe's character have sex with like five women in, mm-hmm. in a row or something like that. And then that older woman just like materializes on screen and we get some of those photos she almost looks like she was like shot on an iPhone or something like that, just because of like the narrowness of the image. Um, I don't know why, like I was just really deeply moved, even though I don't even know what I was responding to. Uh, maybe just because it was so surprising. Um, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff like that. What about you? Formally intriguing at mm-hmm. the very minimum. Um, yeah. You mentioned going back to Willem Dafoe and the, the sled dogs and mm. There's a, a particular scene that is very um, far away and it, it slowly kind of comes up um, and he's just on the back of the sled going up a giant white hill and you can see the sky in the background and dark daggers of trees. And um, there's, there's just something about where that hits in the film and just being in the wild, going from one thing to another and... Um, kind of just being unmoored that I, I just really responded to how the, the beauty of the image was informing the entire context of the, the experience. Yeah, definitely. And that is our first film for VIF. We'll be back next week covering some documentaries from VIF. Looking forward to it. Go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.